0: For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Good morning, my name is Carrie, and I'm going to read our passage for today. It comes from Genesis 27, chapters 1 through 10, and uh, 14 through 38. It says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves, and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that you may your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game, and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near, and he kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and he said See the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed May God give you the dew of heaven of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine Let people serve you and nations bow down to you Be lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Y'all grab a seat. If you've got your Bibles, you might turn to Genesis chapter 27. Carrie, thank you for managing to read that entire passage. It's a long one. All the ADD folks amongst us are checked out already, but uh, we're going to lean in here and have some fun. And uh, it's such a good, good passage, and there's so much life here that we want to look at. But uh, I said in our intro or kind of description of this sermon uh, that went out this week, said to be experts in grace, we must first admit we're experts in sin. Not something we like to do, but there's a reality to our lives that we tend to know kind of how to mess up pretty easily none of us had to be taught we came out of the womb ready to mess up in life and knew how to do this on our own no one had to kind of guide our path into sinfulness but we sort of knew how to do it and there's a reality for every church i don't know if you guys are aware of this but y'all know that every church is full of a bunch of sinners but y'all y'all have to wake up if we're gonna get through this y'all gonna have to engage with me here y'all are aware that every church is full of a bunch of sinners right Yes, and that means that you're one of them too. Welcome to redemption. glad that you're here. Uh, but here's the thing. There's two ways churches deal with sin. One is just to put on a good face and pretend like it's not there. Like That's one approach. The problem is you still have to go home and deal with your spouse. And there's sin, and then you got to go parent those little sinners, and those little sinners got to deal with parents that are big sinners, and we still have to go navigate life. And so that sin stuff is still just sitting there in front of us. And so that's one approach is that we could not deal with it and just put on a good mask and try to manage things on our own. The other approach is that we would be a church that wrestled with our sinfulness and wrestled with our brokenness and wrestled with those things and tried to figure out how God's grace is supposed to intersect with that and show us a new and a better way to live. So when I say that we have to admit that we're experts in sin, I'm not encouraging you. I'm not saying that's a goal. I'm just saying that, you, that most of us have had 365 days a year for however many years we've got. I've got more than most of you uh, that I've been practicing being a sinner. And I'm highly skilled uh being able to navigate the territory of, of sinfulness. And you are well practiced in the same. And so we've got to learn to deal with this, this thing and figure out what it is. And the good news is that we can learn over time to be experts in God's grace, which teaches us a different way to live and a different approach to life. Sound good? All right, well, let's jump in here in Genesis chapter 27. The opening scene creates all the tension for this whole chapter. Isaac's an old man, and he decides to give his blessing to his firstborn son, Esau, which sounds fine, except that two chapters earlier in 25... God said before Esau and Jacob were born, they were twins, they were in their mother's womb, and Rebekah was given an oracle from the Lord that said that the younger will serve, or the older will serve the younger, that Jacob was going to be the one that was going to bear the legacy of Abraham's covenant promises, and that Esau was going to serve Jacob. And so the fact that here, a couple chapters later, Isaac is trying to give Esau the blessing is actually working against what God had told them was going to be the reality of their lives. Isaac's old. Now, it's interesting. Do you have this thing when you read the Bible that you kind of read everything through the lens of your own, your own eyesight, your own age, your own experience? Like, I read this. You realize Isaac's probably getting closer to a hundred years of age at this point. And these, these kids, in my mind, I always saw them, especially when I was growing up. I saw these as like children that went in. And so Jacob is going in clothed in this, you know, except Esau going off to hunt. But I saw them as kind of teenagers are going in and Isaac's going in. I mean, Jacob's going into Isaac in this disguise. And I saw him about that age. These dudes were probably more like my age. These are these are grown men that are disguising, and Jacob is being disguised and going into his old man father to try to pull the wool over him and pull out this uh, pull off this kind of this kind of deception. Now, in reality, Isaac thinks he's dying, so he thinks, man, if I'm going to bless my son Esau, my favorite son, if I'm going to bless the one that I want to carry on my family name and my legacy, the one that I kind of want to give my high five and say, go get him, son, if I want to bless him, I better do it soon before I die. And so he expedites this plan and tries to work this thing out. Now, what we know from being able to read later is he had more than 20 years to live, he was not in a hurry. And yet here he is pushing ahead because he wants to take advantage of this opportunity. And so Isaac arranges this kind of clandestine meeting with Esau. He says, quote, so that my soul may bless you before I die. When he says my soul may bless you, what he's saying is uh, that He wanted to give Esau everything he was and everything he had. I want to take all of who I am and I want to bless you. I want to affirm you. I want to encourage you. I want to empower you to live in my name and carry out the family name throughout uh, all of your future. And that's kind of the mindset that Isaac has as he's approaching this. And his preference, and we see this, that Esau was the son that he loved. He played favorites. And it's going to wreak havoc in their family. He feels like Esau should be the one that carries on the empire, even though God had said it would be Jacob. And so now he's in a conundrum, right? He's in, a, he's, he's in a bit of a pickle trying to figure out, well, I know what I want, I also know what God said, how is it he's going to respond? Now in a healthy situation in a family in that world, this, moment, this deal of the birthright of the blessing should have been like a really fun day, it should have been a good family ceremony, they should have brought the whole family together, had this big kind of thing and it's like, we're going to give a blessing to our son and we're going to pass on the kind of family heritage down the line and it should be this kind of sacred moment, but why is Isaac sneaking around? Because he knows he's doing something that's going against the will of God, but it's interesting in this family. Think about how messed up this family is. Just what you see, um, they're not talking to one another. They're not sharing with one another. There's no family cooperation in this entire experience. In fact, he's sneaking around trying to pull one over and then get around Rebecca and Jacob. Now, Rebecca, for her part, she's sneaking around, eavesdropping, and keeping an eye on him. So as he's saying to Esau, "I'm doing this," she's right in the other room going. Hey, and then she grabs Jacob and she begins to try to manipulate the situation from her perspective to bring about the way she wants to see things work out. No one in this family trusts each other. In fact, in this entire scene, realize that all four of these family members, they're they're never in the same room together once. You have... You have uh, Isaac and Esau, and then you have Rebekah and Jacob, and then you have Jacob and Esau, and then you have Esau and, and uh, or Jacob and Rebecca, and then you have Rebecca and, and Isaac later, but you don 't ever see them all together uh, there 's no communication in this marriage. Uh, Rebecca does not speak till, to Isaac until the whole thing 's completely over. Jacob and Esau, these two brothers never speak in the entire passage and when you consider the, like all the, the the actions of the four people, all of them are about equally at fault. Like there's none of them that stand out and you're like, oh, there's the good guy in this story. Do you ever wonder why there's so many stories like this in the Bible? Like in some ways it seems like a weird text to be in uh, like a major religious book that shows you about spiritual, spiritual life. It's just these family squabbles that are happening, but there's something bigger that's going on. One, I think it's important for us to recognize that, that this is the real stuff of life, isn't it? This is the stuff that we we navigate. We walk through in life. This is a, is the territory we all we all wander through. And what you see in this is that God actually works with them in the nitty-gritty stuff of their everyday of their everyday lives. And that's good that that's important stuff for us to understand that normal stuff is where God's good desires show up in our lives, but it's also where our desires sometimes get disordered. And they begin to take on sinful expressions in our in our own lives, and we have to deal with that. So let's unpack what happens in this family and look at how they got there, and then we'll turn and talk about why that matters for you and for me. Sound good? All right. Well, when we look at this story, the first thing that we see is that each of these people are overconfident in the ability of their feelings, instincts, and senses to provide a helpful map for their life. These people are they are overconfident in their ability for their instincts, for their feelings, for their own senses to guide them and give them a good map for how they should live. Uh, it's interesting in this passage, that you notice as Carrie was reading that all five senses are at play in this story, and yet all five senses are also de- deceptive. They, they all lead them astray. They don't, don't speak truth to them. Uh, it's a classic example of kind of trusting your own perspective rather than trusting God's. And uh, you're the, you trust that you're reading the situation through your own input better than what God is reading the situation. It's interesting in verse one, it says, when Isaac was old, his eyes were dim so that he could not see. When it says his eyes are dim, it's actually kind of a catchphrase in that culture that just means his senses were not all there. Like they were not, he was not seeing things as fully as he should. One commentator said of this, that Isaac was, uh, really is, is blind in more than one way. It's not just his eyesight; it's all of his sensory intake is actually misleading him. Uh, Think about the story for a minute. Isaac's taste drove him to want this meal, and yet he's unable to tell the difference between his wife's goat stew and the homemade and the the wild game stew that that Esau brought back. Uh, He's deceived in what they are. His he touches the smooth-skinned Jacob, who's in the disguise, and he's easily tricked to think he's like the hairy-skinned Esau. Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Isaac calls Jacob to come closer to him at the end of the story and says, come closer to me and kiss me, my son. It says that Isaac smelled the smell of his garments that he was inviting him in because he wanted to smell. Does he smell like Esau? And he was deceived and said, oh yeah, this is Esau. Smells just like my wild son that doesn't shower and runs around in the woods all the time. Like that's that dude and that's what he looks like. Um, think about his listening. It says, when he listened closely, he thought he heard the voice of Jacob but he he allowed the evidence of all the other senses to override what he thought maybe he heard with his ears. All of these senses are at play in this story, and they all end up being misleading. Now... As a writer, this is not, these aren't just extraneous details. This isn't like the writer got bored and was like, I think I'm just going to throw in a lot of little details that are meaningless here. All of this is really intentional. It's wanting to get our attention. It's wanting us to say that sometimes our perspective, our senses, our feelings, our emotions, the way in which we live and, and take in life can actually mislead us from the, way, the path of God. So Isaac's problem really is spiritual. He trusts his own feelings, instincts, senses more than he trusts what God had said about in the oracle earlier. And he's not the only one. Uh, verse five says, now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Now, what were Rebecca's options in this moment? Like, did she go in and talk to her husband? Hey, Isaac, seems like there's something going down. Can we have a chat about this? Did she lean into the tension and say, hey, I need to have a confrontation with you. You're doing something that goes against God's will and we need to have a, have a heart-to-heart no, she begins to try to work her own plan and go, I think I can navigate this. I think my own my own instincts can give me a better map for how to solve this problem than to trust what the Lord has to say in the middle of this scenario. But let's think about this from Rebecca's perspective for just a minute. Because I've got a lot of empathy for the way she's approaching this. She, when the, she had these two twins in her womb, she received an oracle from the Lord that said that the older Esau would serve the younger Jacob. And from her human perspective, from her human perspective, Isaac's about to totally derail God's plan. Isaac's about to overthrow what God had said was gonna happen and steer their entire family in an entirely different direction. And so God's plan's gonna be thwarted and overturned. And God had said that the, the blessing that he gave to Abraham and the, the covenant promises were supposed to go through Jacob and Isaac's about to mess with that. And she's like, this is jacked up. I'm going to fix it. And I can empathize with that. Can you relate to that? You see any scenarios in life where you're walking through and you go, that's not right. I think I can fix it. And you step in and insert yourself and try to do something. That is a very natural human thing. And everything in Rebecca's personality and her makeup is telling her, look, desperate situations require desperate measures. So I'm going to do something radical and I'm going to get this fixed. Uh, it's interesting. She acts quickly to devise a plan and uh, I, I love the expertise with which she executes everything. Like she's, she, th- this, this woman's on top of uh, her game and she's going to make sure that she brings about the appropriate out- outcome. Uh, do you know people like this? Like you might be one of them. Uh, just FYI, like we all have some of this in us, but notice she has this kind of subtle plan that she takes in. She says, I'm going to prepare... Yeah, Isaac's favorite meal. I'm going to prepare that meal that he loves. And she, she takes her best meal and she even throws some extra bread on it. Like bread's going to smell good. I'm going to make some bread too and put that in the mix. And then she goes and gets, it says Esau's very best clothes. And she puts his best clothes on Jacob because she's not leaving anything to chance. She's subtly scheming and planning to make sure this all comes off and is pulled off. So there's kind of subtle planning. There's also this kind of strong handed pressure. Uh, It says over and over in this passage that she just tells Jacob, Jacob, obey me. Jacob, obey me and go do what I said. Uh, And so she's not afraid to to apply some like strong pressure to the situation and say, son, do what I say. And and then lastly, also see that she comes around on the backside and offers this general reassurance. Jacob actually says, as you kind of go through the text, he says, what if it doesn't work? Like, what if we go and I dress up like Esau and we do all this and I bring your stew in and and dad comes in and he goes, dude, you're not Esau and that's not wild game stew. Like, this is all messed up. He goes, dad's going to curse me and this thing's going to backfire and come back on me. And what'd she say to him? She says, oh, son, if, if that happens, I'll take the curse for you. I'll take the hit. And so she comes in with this kind of emotionally reassuring encouragement of, you know, if anything goes wrong, I'll take the blame for it all. Um, do you see how, how how much she's working in this? She's, she's like, like Isaac. She's overconfident in her own ability to navigate everything with her senses and her instincts and her own feelings and, and ways of, of working. Um, her problem's spiritual as well. She trusts her own perspective more than she trusts what God told her. Because could God have brought this about in a different way? Could God have somehow rescued this scenario around, apart from her deception, and her manipulation and and working the situation out. Absolutely the Lord could have. But she's thinking it's all up to me. Well, what about Jacob? It says Jacob's afraid in the story. And it's interesting because Jacob's not afraid that he's doing something immoral and and going against God's wishes. He's afraid he's gonna get caught. He's afraid of being exposed as a fraud. He's afraid uh, of getting busted. And so he says, well, what happens, what, what happens if I get caught? This curse is going to come down on me. And that's when you know, she steps in and says that. But she just says, Jacob, look, just obey me. And I think what Jacob fears maybe more than anything is his mom. Like, ladies, I don't know if you know the power you have over guys, but you got a lot more power than some of you realize. Some of you, although you actually do realize it, but Jacob, I think in this whole story, it's hilarious because she says over and over, obey me, and he's like, okay. Uh, just does whatever she says. She doesn't, He doesn't stop and ask questions. Uh, it's interesting when you think of Jacob, does he, uh, does he ever stop and just say, well, what does God say about this? What's, does, does, this does this behavior honor the Lord? Is... God able to provide some way to bring about his plans other than this deceitful, deceitful path that we're setting ourselves on right now he doesn't ever stop to ask the question he just does what mama says and runs forward trusting that their perspective is the only way out now is even worse off he wants the benefits of the blessing, but he has no interest in God whatsoever. In fact, he's already married people who uh, don't follow the God of Abraham and Isaac, and he's run his own course, and he's trying to get the blessing and the birthright, saying, hey, I want all the stuff, but I'm really not interested in the God who actually gives the blessing or gives the stuff. But Jacob and Esau, just like Isaac and just like Rebecca, are trusting their own perspective, their own feelings, instincts, and senses more than they trust what God has to say. They're overconfident that they can find a map for their life that will work itself out. Now, it's interesting as you look at this whole kind of the way this passage unfolds, as you see this family kind of family history unfold, you see a family pattern develop. In fact, if you go back uh, just a few chapters, you see Abraham goes and he's meeting with foreign people and he becomes fearful for his life. And in that, and he says, Sarah, who is attractive, his wife, he says, well, this is just my sister. She's not my wife because he's afraid they're going to knock him off and take his wife. And so he's like, oh, she's just my sister, which actually puts her in danger, but he's being deceitful. Isaac, watching his father, do, uh, hearing that story or knowing that and hearing that same thing, does the same thing with Rebecca. that he gets himself in a pickle and finds a situation where he goes, hey, what, how am I going to respond to this? And he says, well, she's just my sister. She's not my wife. And then they see them kind of having a little bit of fun together, and they're like, hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Because they were being deceitful. And now that deceitfulness has begun to blossom so that all four of these family members are deceiving one another. And there's no trust at all established in their family. They're sneaking around, manipulating circumstances to get what they want. And they all feel completely justified in their actions because they feel like this is the way for me to get God's blessing, this is the way for me to get the good stuff of life. Um, Do you see what a problem this introduces in terms of their family, in terms of their relationship? This is actually why I called this sermon the masquerade party, because it feels like they're all dressed up, wearing a, wearing a mask, playing a game, uh, and yet it's got dire consequences that, that show up in the life of this family. And as much deception as we see in the story from Rebecca and Jacob as they're trying to deceive Isaac and steal Esau's blessing, the greatest deception in this story actually comes from sin. You guys realize that sin is a deceiver? That sin... Uh, constantly leads us in a way of thinking we're going to get something good and then robs us and gives us something else that isn't really the goodness that we were seeking. Uh, it's interesting that when you think about this story and we read this passage, like it's obvious to us that what they're doing wrong, right? Like we we read this passage and we don't go like, oh, that was a good move, I, uh, Rebecca. Like that, that's going to end up well. It's so easy for us to see where they're going wrong. Um, and it but it's so much harder for us sometimes to see where we're going wrong in the real stuff of our lives. Because when we're in the middle of these messes and we're navigating these scenarios and we're navigating the difficulties of life, so often it's hard for us to have a perspective that didn't come just from us, but to trust that God's way is going to be best. And friends, here's what I, what I want us to understand about sin. like we, You guys know we're complex creatures that are full of competing desires. It's part of what makes life so interesting and fascinating it's also what makes life so difficult and deceptive. And one of the reasons I love this book is there is no piece of literature in the world that is clearer or truer in dealing with the complexity of the human life and all the, all, all the mystery of, of what we are and, and what, how it is that we are called to live. Um, it's interesting. Lewis Smead says this about us. He says, we're a, walking set of con- we're a set of walking contradictions. Our inner lives are not partitioned like day and night. You know, day and night's just so easy. It's like, well, there's black and there's white. It's really clear. But our lives are not partitioned like that with pure light on one side of us and total darkness on the other. Mostly our souls are shadow places. We live on the border where our dark sides block light and throw shadow on our interior places. We can't always tell where light ends and our shadow begins and where our shadow ends and darkness begins. There's this kind of mix of life that happens. And it's, we're just not, people are never all one thing. You don't look at someone and be like, oh, that person's all good and that person's all bad. We're all a mix and we've got this difficulty of life. No person can be summed up as just one or the other. It's because we're created in the image of God to live for him and so we're all of value and have worth and we've got this call in our lives to live for the Lord and yet we're also fallen into sin and rebellion. And so we live in, in fighting against God's ways. And we at the same time, those two things are at work within each of our lives. It's interesting, the book of Romans in the New Testament says uh, that we all have a natural sense that God is real, and, and we have a natural sense of right and wrong, but we suppress that truth. We press it down rather than living into that and, and choose to live in deceitful ways. Philosopher Cornelius Plantinga calls it self-swindling. And I love that phrase, that we we swindle ourselves. We put a fast one on on our own lives. He says, self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We prettify ugly realities and sell ourselves the prettified versions. It's interesting, Isaac knew the oracle that the older was supposed to serve the younger, but he convinced himself that he should give the blessing to Esau, his favorite, the oldest, which was in line with the cultural norms of the day, which is in line with his personal preference, which is in line with what he thought was going to work out according to his own perspective. And he refused to trust the Lord. Friends, we need to recognize that sin is deceitful. Sin makes us think we see the full picture when we only see a part. And we may have good intentions, and we may have good desires, but we embrace something that's going to actually create a mess of our lives when we embrace something that goes against what God says. No one sins because we think sin is ugly and deceitful. Like you don't ever look and go, huh, I bet that's going to end in a radical mess that's going to really destroy a whole lot of my relationships. Let's do that. Right? Like no one, None of us step into sinfulness in that kind of a way. We step into sinfulness because we're deceived to think it's going to give us something good. And then it robs us and deceives us and gives us something that we didn't want. Sin always makes us think we could go against God's plan and not make a mess of things. Uh, Sin sometimes remains well hidden behind a mask. And sometimes we're able to like, we're so good at it that we can mask it and make it look good. But you realize even when you get away with it, you create distance between yourself and the Lord and you create distance between yourself and others because disguises and masks are hard to keep up. And so it creates isolation in our lives. And it's interesting that when, kind of as you begin to think about this, sin always costs us more than we think it will. And it does that in this story as well. Can I give you a picture of how this happens? Have you ever heard the proverbial story of the blind men and the elephant? and it's kind of an old story that's gone around for a long time you got this group of blind men that they've never experienced an elephant before and they are brought into a room or a situation where they're able to experience part of an elephant so the first uh, blind man walks up and he grabs hold of the trunk he says oh an elephant is like a snake and the next guy goes up and he goes to the body of the elephant he pushes up against it. He's like oh an elephant's a wall and the next guy goes to the backside and grabs the tail of the elephant and is like oh no an elephant's like a rope now Here's the thing, all three of them were right in a very limited framework, right? That the tail was very much like a rope. If you push on an elephant, it's gonna feel very much like a wall. If you grab a trunk of an elephant, it's gonna feel like a giant snake. But they didn't really have an understanding of what an elephant really was because they couldn't see. They had a limited perspective. They had limited ability to navigate or, or to see the whole, And they had a limited experience of, uh, of all the, the different parts that were at play in this elephant and because of that, they lacked sense of the sensory de- deprivation of, or senses of experiencing the whole thing. Um, they fall short of really understanding what's going on and what's unfolding. Don't we do that in life sometimes? Like you come to a situation and you see it within a certain framework and you see through your lens, like this is the way things are right now. And, and based on that, I think this is how I have to operate. But you just don't see the whole picture and you don't understand what's going on. And the Lord does, and we have to learn to trust him. Friends, I hate to tell you this, but we all make dumb decisions. We're gonna do selfish things. We're gonna, we're, gonna make, uh, we're, we're gonna say harmful things to others. We're gonna bend the truth and twist others' words. We're gonna go on petty tirades about the actions of others while we're hiding our own and masking our own actions at the same time. Uh, we're gonna make choices that go in all kinds of ways, but God in his relentless grace is not going to leave us there. He's going to continue to engage us and call us out of our own foolishness. These people in the book of Genesis, it's interesting, they're all just normal everyday people with ordinary foibles and and kind of problems like you and me, right? Like, look at this, that looks like family conflict 101. We all walk through these kinds of things and we all have these patterns. So let's look how this plays out. It's interesting because Jacob goes in and he dresses himself up like Esau and he walks in to go see Isaac and he's portraying him. And there's something symbolic about the fact he's dressing up as Esau because he's actually trying to take the first uh, the birthright from Esau and take the blessing from Esau. And so he's kind of playing the role that he's called to play. And uh, when he goes in, it says he goes to him and says, my father... And Isaac responds, here am I. Who are you, my son? What's Jacob say? I'm Esau, your firstborn. Um, Neither of those are true, but it's interesting because one guy says that the the way in which it's said is the last word is supposed to be the most significant in the Hebrew uh, kind of way that works itself out there. So he's saying, I'm I'm Esau. He skips past that really quickly and says, I'm the firstborn. Dad, I want to be the one who's the firstborn. I'm, I'm Esau, the firstborn. And he rushes to that point and is trying to make his point. He's lying. And then he gives lies upon lies. He says, later, he says, come and eat of my game. Well, he's not; it's, it's not his game. It, he's actually feeding him goats that his mom fixed for him. So he's lying there. He says, that your soul may bless me, your son, at your firstborn. Firstborn, another lie. Uh, Isaac starts to get onto something. He goes, wait a minute. Verse 20 says, how is it that you found it so quickly? Meaning, you just left, and supposedly you've gone out, hunted, cleaned the game, uh, uh, kill. You know, been able to been able to locate uh, a wild animal. You've been able to skin it. You've been able to clean it. Been able to prep it. Been able to put it in a stew. Let it uh, soften, and it takes time to cook that. Like, how are you back here so fast? Um, notice what what I uh, what Jacob says. Because the Lord your God granted me success. Now you have just brought God into this. So now you've gone from lying to blasphemy. And so you're including God in your lies. And it's interesting that that, that Isaac begins to suspect and is like, I don't know, what's going on? And the voice sounds like Jacob and he's a little nervous and Jacob starts to get nervous. One commentator said, at the very beginning when Isaac's talking to him, Jacob's speaking in long sentences. And as soon as Jacob says, I think something, or as soon as Isaac says, I think something's going on, this sounds like the voice of Jacob. Jacob gives one word answers from that point on. He's like, who are you? He's like, are, are are you Esau? I says, yep, I am you know, it's just like, not going to speak a whole lot because I don't want to give this away. But he knows he's being deceitful. Or deceitful. Now, it's interesting that the, there's also this scene where this parting kiss, he goes, come and give me a kiss, my son. And it's hard not to see that and not think of Judas' kiss of betrayal, isn't it? But think of as you're going to lie and as you're offering this blasphemy and including the Lord in this, and then you come to kiss your father and ask for this blessing. And Isaac believes it. He's deceived, and he gives Jacob the blessing. Uh, Esau comes in immediately after, almost catches Jacob in the act. Verse 30 says, As soon as Isaac finished blessing Jacob, Jacob has scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac. Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Now Isaac's panicked. Isaac looks and goes, Who are you? Because I just gave the blessing to who I thought was you. Who are you who's come in from the hunt? It says that he trembled a great tribble exceedingly. It's this kind of redundant thing that's just meant to go like, he's shaking violently because he realizes what's happened, that this plan that he's schemed has been worked against him and Jacob has deceived him. Esau, it says, gives a great and bitter cry. One translation says, he gave himself to wild and angry sobbing at what had happened. See, a blessing in that world meant everything to them. It was what they'd pinned their hopes on. And they wanted this affirmation and encouragement and empowerment for the future from a father. And it's a powerful thing to experience it. But here, you're left with Isaac trembling and with Esau weeping. It's like a great Shakespearean tragedy. That's just like everything's completely unraveled and bottomed out. And um, Isaac says, your brother came in deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. Isaac still sees things the same way. Do you feel how this family's just unraveled around this idea of this blessing and how they can take it? Um, Now, it's interesting, in verse uh, 41, uh, what we see is that the Esau responds kind of as you think he would. It says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching me. My dad's going to die soon and then I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. I'm going to get back. And I'm going to take you out. And I'm going to take back what is mine, what is rightfully mine. It's interesting in verse, or chapter 28. So the very next thing that happens in the story is Rebecca understands. Mamas know their boys. And she knows Esau's plotting to kill her son Jacob. And she says, Jacob, you need to leave home for your own safety. I want you to go to my brother's house, Laban, in a faraway land. And there I want you to find a wife. And so this family has now split up. This is the way this story ends. Let's talk about consequences just a little bit. It's interesting that they gained nothing through all their actions and they, they seemingly lost everything, didn't they? Think about the, kind of what happened here. Isaac rushed things because he said, I might die. I have to make sure I give the blessing to, to uh, Esau. Uh, what we know is that Isaac lived more than 20 years, or about 20 years from here. They could have had 20 years together as a family beyond this point, but he blew it up. And fractured their family for those two decades esau hated Jacob and planned to murder him as soon as he could, even though Rebecca and jacob they, they won the the deceit right like they they got the blessing that they were seeking, but they couldn 't enjoy it they couldn 't enjoy anything that they, that they had taken. In fact, Jacob ends up having to leave home. What should have happened when you receive the blessing is he receives the inheritance of all of most of the, of the father 's things. He receives the family name, he receives the public affirmation, he receives the covenant promises from God, and he 's empowered to carry on the legacy and carry that family into the future for all of his life. He 's set up for success. instead, what happens with Jacob? is he goes away penniless with nothing but the clothes on his back to live away from his family without any inheritance and, um, and separated and isolated from his father, from his brother, and from his mother. In fact, it's interesting, Rebecca says to Jacob that you have to flee your brother. And she says, go stay with my brother Laban for just a little while. That phrase, just a little while, means for just a few days is what it means. Um, as far as we know, she never saw Jacob again. So she schemed to get him this blessing and then she never saw the son that she loved the rest of her life. Um, it seems like it cost him everything, doesn't it? So let me ask you a question. What do we do with this? Like, how do we live in light of this message? How do we learn? How do we grow? Um, how, how do we actually grow spiritually? And so, here's the bad news I have for you is it most of the time happens kind of like this. Like we create messes in our lives, some of them little messes and some of them really big messes. And then we learn to confess, to ask forgiveness, to trust God's grace, and then to realign our lives with God's plans. And that's the way we tend to learn. It's less about our progress, our progress to, to spiritual maturity is less about uh, us become, moving towards perfection, but us constantly moving in the right direction to constantly trust, trust uh, the Lord and, and to trust him day by day, month by month, year by year until we get decades of learning to realign our lives with him. Now, that's just what the spiritual growth process tends to look like as we learn, as we unlearn trusting our own feelings, instincts, and senses and learning to trust God and his promises more and more. Let me show you what this looks like in this story. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 uh, kind of gives you. A, it's an interesting. Something's easy to miss in the text, but it says, "Then Isaac trembled very violently." This is when he figured out that Jacob had stolen it, uh, stolen the the um, the blessing. He says, "Well, who was it then that hunted the game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him." And then it says, "Yes, and he will be blessed." Here's what uh, what I think happens in that. If I were writing this as a screenplay. There, you know, screenplays, a lot of times you'll have the text of whatever, or the dialogue or whatever said, and they'll put in brackets, like the, the clues that tell you how they're supposed to act it out. I think what happens there would be th- those words that, that Isaac says, where, where he says, um, who was it that came in? He's already deceived you, and I've already given him the blessing. Then it would say, pause, change of facial expression, look away from Esau. So He's trembling violently. He's looking at Esau. He's like, who was it that came in? And I've already given the blessing and I've already done it. And then all of a sudden there's this something that dawns on him. And he steps back and goes, oh. And he looks away from Esau, looks out the window and pauses and says, yes. And he will be blessed. Because he starts to realize that God is at work in this that it wasn't just Jacob that deceived him, but that God was fulfilling his promise. God had said in the oracle years before, the older is gonna serve the younger. God's plans will not be thwarted by the craziness of all of our messes. God's gonna carry out his plan and all of a sudden it dawns on Isaac. He says, yes, and he will be blessed. There's nothing I can do to undo that. In fact, you get to chapter 28 when uh, Rebecca sends Jacob off to the foreign land to go to Laban. Isaac is there and Isaac actually offers a second word of blessing, this time voluntarily, willfully, not deceived, but he says, my son, you will bear the promise of the covenant that was given to Abraham that was given to me, and you are gonna be the one that carries it forward going from these days forward. He understands that he began to not just see, but began to accept the truth. In fact, Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Isaac came to a place of faith where he began to see the reality of what God was doing.
0: Um,
1: now it, it's interesting that God, uh, that he understands this and begins to accept it. You know, he tried to work things out according to uh, according to their culture and the way their culture wanted to do things in the patriarchal system of giving it to the firstborn. And that didn't work. He tried to give it according to his preference. This is my favorite son. I want him to have it. That didn't work. He tried to work it out according to his own manipulation and navigating all these things and sneaking around, and that didn't work. And he just finally comes around and says, yes, and he will be blessed. He admits, I've been fighting against God. I've been trying to do things my own way. I need to learn to trust the Lord. And part of our learning to accept God's plan is learning to experientially trust that God has our best interest in mind. So friends, there's one more gospel connection that I want to give that I think is really important for us to see in this passage. There's a, a place where, uh, where, where you understand this connection to the firstborn. The thing that they desired, that they wanted, was, I want the blessing. I want the, I want the place of the firstborn. I want the goodness of all the things that were supposed to come to the firstborn in that world and the way they understood it. They were grasping and seizing and trying to grab it. But here's what's interesting when you look at the scriptures. Do you realize that Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the firstborn son of God? Scriptures call him the only begotten son. Baptism, God offers a word of blessing over Jesus and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, God offers a blessing. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. God continually comes. And after Jesus' resurrection, he's called the firstborn of the dead. But here's the thing. Jesus left his place as the firstborn son who had the rights to all the blessings that were his and he emptied himself and he climbed up on a cross and he put on the cloak of sinful humanity and aligned himself with us so that we might then be clothed with the righteousness of Christ that he deserved. This is the great exchange. He swapped places with us. He says, I want you to be as the firstborn and I will act as the one who's cursed. Oh, it's interesting in this passage, if you go back and look at verse 13 in chapter 27, what does it say um, about Rebecca? Because do you remember the, the kind of comfort that she was gonna give to Jacob when Jacob's like, what if this all goes wrong and my dad figures it out and all of a sudden I'm no longer blessed, but I'm cursed by my dad. And she says, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take the curse for, for you. She says that very flippantly and very lightheartedly because she's not really considering that as an option. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus said those words, let the curse fall on me. And he meant them. And he stepped upon a cross and he climbed upon a cross and took on the curse of a sinful death, robed in sinful humanity so that we might be aligned as the firstborn son. Here's the thing. Jesus knew what he was committing to do. He, 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 shed the role of firstborn son so that he might lift us up and us all be firstborn sons. It's interesting. Hebrews 12 says, but you have come for those who come to belief in Christ to the city of the living God, to the church of the firstborn. Isn't that fascinating? How do you have a church full of firstborns? A family only has one firstborn, but in Christ somehow all of us are the firstborn. We all get the place of blessing. We all get the place of God's promise. We all get to be the ones that carry the firstborn thing that Jesus deserved and earned. We get to be covered in it. And some of you grew up in families who didn't have enough love to share a real blessing with even the firstborn favorite son, much less all the kids in the family. And I want you to know, friend, that God in his grace has more than enough love to treat all of us as his favorite son, as his firstborn son, as the objects of his blessing, as the ones that he will shower his goodness on forevermore, the ones that he will affirm, that he will empower, that he will encourage, and he will cast off into the future with a hope that is never-ending. Jesus in uh, John 17 says to his father, you have loved them just as you love me. God loves you just as he loves Christ, his firstborn. And there's nothing you can do to shed that. Friends, in Christ, you are a firstborn of a heavenly father who speaks blessing over you that says, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Not because of our perfection, but because of Christ and what he did for us. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we stand in that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the miracle of your grace that takes all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did and makes us as he is. Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a deeper trust in your goodness and your grace and your mercy and in your ways. That we might seek you. We might love you more deeply. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. And by your spirit, amen.